episode 69, Golfing Buddies. I'm Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a December 3rd, 2008 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured in the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. If you're ever in a jam, here I am. If you're ever in a mess, S-O-S. Located near Kansas City, Kansas, Dubs Dread is one of the world's most intimidating golf courses. Harold Jug McSpadden designed it that way. This Kansas native was one of golf's great in his day, but he has since been lost to history. Find out why when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me examine a ticket used at a monumental matchup played at Dubs Dread in 1968. At the tournament, McSpadden squared off against Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas. Was the Kansas golfer bested on a course of his own design? Later, we connect William Allen White, a small-town newspaper editor from Emporia, Kansas, to the Mayflower, a 17th-century British cargo ship that carried 102 pilgrims to the New World. Find out who had more buoyancy when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, golfing buddies. If they ever cook your goose, turn me loose. And if they ever put a bullet through your brain, I'll complain. Good morning, Michaela. Today we are talking about a ticket um, that was used for a 1968 golf tournament at a course near um, near Bonner Springs, Kansas, which is a suburb of Kansas City. Uh, it's a small paper ticket with cotton ties and a small map printed in green. Um, but what's really interesting about the ticket is the list of some rather well-known names that are on the front of the ticket. In attendance at this particular golf tournament uh, were famous players such as Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, and Brian Nelson. That's pretty impressive for a golf tournament in, in a Kansas City suburb. Um, the ticket advertises four golfers, like I said, um, Palmer, Nicholas, and Nelson. And all were well-known, but I don't recognize the fourth name, McSpadden. Who was Harold McSpadden, and why is he nicknamed Jug? Well, in his time, Harold McSpadden was as famous a golfer as Nelson. Um, Nelson has more notoriety because he finished in first place more times. But um, Nelson or McSpadden was a professional golfer. Um, he played from the 1920s until the 1990s. He was a native Kansan, born in Monticello, which was basically absorbed by Kansas City, Kansas. Mm -hmm. So he lived in that area a good portion of his life. Um, his interest in golf began when he saw a match in Kansas City when he was 10. And after that, he began caddying so that he could learn the game. In uh, 1926, he joined the PGA, which had been around since 1917, mm -hmm. and he played in the first Masters tournament in 1934. Impressive. Yeah, he actually had a pretty successful career. Um, over the course of his career, he retired from the PGA um, in 1947, and between 1926 and 1947, he had 17 PGA Tour victories, and he finished in second place 31 times, 13 times in one year, uh, taking second to 
Byron Nelson, of course. I heard I read somewhere that he actually doesn't have the record for the most first place finishes, but he has the record for the most second place finishes in one year. That's right. And in 1945, he set the record for the most top 10 finishes in one year. Um, the origin of the nickname Jug is kind of unknown. Um, it was a nickname he acquired as a child. And in some sources, it says he claimed that he didn't remember how he got it. And in one other source, it was a nickname that one of his neighbors or a family friend gave to him. But it's a little unclear on why people called him Jug. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a weird nickname. It's a weird name, but you know, I've actually heard um, that nickname used um, for that twenties, thirties, forties. Jug mm-hmm. is not an uncommon nickname. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> well, if anybody out there knows, maybe they can tell us. <laughs> if there's any jugs out there that know why they're called jugs? Yeah, uh, let us know. Let us know. Uh, in his youth, McSpadden, like you said, he worked as a caddy in golf courses in Kansas City, uh, which put him in contact with probably some pretty influential people. Mm-hmm. But there is one story in particular that, that kind of interests me. Um, Nikayla, can you tell us why McSpadden on one particular day <laughs> might have had to carry a violin case uh, when he carried around someone's golf clubs? Well, he wasn't actually carrying someone's clubs on that day. As a teenager, he played money matches against area golfers. Um, And some people said that he was more driven if there was money involved in the the game. As we all are. Yeah, yeah. So um, as a teenager, he liked to play for money. And in one of these matches, he played against a local mobster. And the name was not mentioned, the specific name of the mobster, but we all know that the Pendergasts were the mob family in Kansas City. So it very well could have been someone from that family or associated with that group. Um, before play began, a Tommy gun fell out of the mobster's golf bag. And that, you know, made McSpadden a little nervous. Yeah, what do you do? Yeah. What, well, especially if you're winning. Yeah. You're beating him. Yeah, because he's got a Tommy gun and you've got your 9 iron, you know. <laughs> so um, so he was nervous. And at the end of the match, he said he was glad to have made it out of there. But he wasn't so nervous that he didn't win money. He actually took $500 away from that match. McSpadden and Palmer and Nicholas and Nelson, they were all members of the PGA. That's right. What is the Professional Golf Association, and does it explain why all these famous golfers were in Kansas City at the same time? Well, the Professional Golfers Association, as I mentioned, was founded in 1917, and it's the largest sports association in the world. Now it is mainly a representative organization for um, club and teaching professionals. And since 1968, all pro tournaments are run by the PGA Tour, which is independent from the PGA. Which is kind of spun off into its own entity. Right. But the PGA does conduct 40 tournaments a year for its professional golfers. Um, As you mentioned, all of these gentlemen were members of the PGA, but it doesn't really explain why they were in Kansas City. That is more related to McSpadden and his talents as a promoter. He was part of the PGA. He knew people. And Dubs Dread was his course. He designed that course. So he wanted to promote it in the best way possible. And if you've got friends in high places, the best way to do that is bring them in to play an exhibition golf tournament, an exhibition golf match. So that's what he was doing. And this wasn't the only tournament like this that he did. This is just the one we have a ticket for. There were others where he invited other famous golfers in to help promote his course. Uh, like you said, according to the ticket, these guys, they were all going to play at Dubs Dread Golf Course. Mm-hmm. What is Dubs Dread, and why does it have such a funky name? Well, as we've mentioned, Dubs Dread is located near Bonner Springs, which is basically a suburb of Kansas City, Kansas. Um, it was designed by McSpadden in the 1960s, and he also owned another area golf course called Painted Hills. Um, 
Dub's Dread was a tough course. At one time, the Guinness Book of World Records listed it as the longest course in the world. Um, and if anybody, really? In the, yeah. in the, in in the, the middle world. of Kansas? In the middle of, yeah, you don't really think of Kansas as being golf haven, right? But if you think about, you know, not only the topography of Kansas, but the weather and other factors, wind, Kansas can be a very difficult place to play golf. And sure. if you have a, an incredibly long course, and eastern Kansas is a little more hilly, so you have all those factors figured in. It could be a very difficult, difficult course to play. It's no longer the longest course over time. That's it's too bad. It's shrunk a little bit. Um, I'm assuming that's from urban sprawl. And the course there houses around the course, so I'm assuming that to help pay for such an elaborate course, they had to sell off some of the land at some point. And I know um, it didn't work out for McSpadden. He had to declare bankruptcy because the cost of running the course was too much. You know, so... Um, I'm assuming that's part of the reason why it's shrunk. But still, the yardage is ranged between, you know, 5,400 and 7,100 yards. So it's still Jeez. a long, difficult course, and golfers still are quite challenged by it today. And just to be clear, you said that it was designed It was designed by McSpadden himself. That's right, yeah. And he actually, you know, he was very active in the course. Um, and one time I think he was the pro there, like when it very first started. Or he didn't give lessons there. He wasn't really – he wasn't – that type of golfer he kind of liked his you know privacy and to keep to himself but um after he had to sell the course um he still owned the water company that provided water to the course and he himself would go around and check the meters so he was very involved probably in carrying a golf bag with him while he did it probably and maybe a tommy gun <laughs> and playing some rounds <laughs> yeah so the origin of the name dubs dread we actually had to call the pro at dubs dread to find out why it's called that but apparently golfers were um at one time called dubbers so dub comes from that and dread being a difficult course it's actually not the only course in the united states called dubs dread there's one in um illinois and one in orlando florida they're also called dubs dread mm -hmm. and dub Dub is, I think that's kind of a Celtic, it's a word with some Celtic origin or, or Scottish term. Um, so that kind of explains its link to golf because that's yeah. where golf started was in Scotland. Yeah, it makes sense. And Dub's Dread seems like a kind of strange name, but it, it does, does make sense. It makes it sound very intimidating, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> the ticket pairs McSpadden and Nelson. Uh, the two often played in the same tournament, and these frenemies even earned the nickname the Gold Dust Twins, which sounds like a James Bond supervillain to me. Uh, what was their relationship to one another? Well, you're right in calling McSpadden and Nelson frenemies. They were probably more friends than enemies, but they were definitely rivals on top of being friends. So it was a very, it was a friendly rivalry. Um, they were often paired together in tournaments, and Nelson typically finished first and McSpadden second. Um, they got the nickname the Gold Dust Twins because of their ability to sweep tournaments and in part because of the amount of money and war bonds that they earned in playing these um, these matches. Um, during World War II, neither of them could be drafted for health reasons. Um, McSpadden had some kind of a sinus problem and Nelson ha was um, had hemophilia. So neither one could go into the and fight in the war. And I think to a degree, you know, they were patriotic. They wanted to do something for their country. They couldn't fight. So they decided to start playing exhibition golf matches for the USO and the Red Cross. And I think they also gave free lessons on military bases. Um, 
So oftentimes they would play a round of golf with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, and then they would have an auction afterwards to raise money for the war effort. And in these tournaments, they themselves, when when they won, um, they would be given war bonds instead of money uh-huh. because, you know, money was tight. Um, in 1944, Nelson won $37,967 in war Goodness. bonds. Goodness. That's pretty good. Yeah, McSpadden won 23855 in war bonds. And I saw... Some people who said that over the course of their careers, um, in modern terms, they would have been millionaires. You know, their their total prizes would have amounted to, you know, 15 or $20 million. Mm-hmm. So that's how they got the nickname, the Gold Dust Twins. And they both even appeared in a short film with Bing Crosby in uh, 1940 called Swing with Bing. <laughs> it was a short movie about golf. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Um, their relationship, though rivals, it was very jovial. Um, at one tournament in Philadelphia, Nelson and his wife stayed at the McSpadden home for the entire week of the tournament. And in the course of the tournament, McSpadden was winning. But on the last day, Nelson made a big comeback, and he won the tournament. So upon losing, McSpadden remarked, you not only beat my brains out, but you also eat all my food. <laughs> and then uh, when, McSpadden, mooch. Yeah, mooch. when McSpadden died in 1996, Nelson said, I feel like I've lost a wonderful friend. We never had an argument in all the time we played together. So they were really, they were dear friends, but... What happened to McSpadden, and why don't we see his name on golf clubs? Well, McSpadden retired from the PGA in 1947, and then for a while he worked as the vice president of a sporting goods company, but he couldn't stay away from golf. Um, he returned to the senior PGA Tour and continued to play until the 1990s. As we mentioned, in the 60s, he designed Dubs Dread, and he also owned Painted Hills. And then um, his golf... You know, I mean, he he had periods where he was really good. His play was kind of erratic, even after he retired and then returned to the senior PGA, just like it was when he played. Um, in 1994, he shot an 81 at Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and became the oldest golfer to ever better his age in a Champions Tour event. He was 85 <laughs> at the time. And this is still something that's talked about, you know, like, can you better your age shooting? I mean, for us, it would be a little difficult. Right. But for him, you know, shooting an 81 when you're 85, that's great, you know? Yeah. Um, he died under unusual circumstances in 1996. He and his wife were found um, dead in their car where it had been running in their closed garage. So carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh, goodness. Yeah, it's it's a little mysterious and unfortunate. Um, he probably doesn't have his name on clubs simply because, though he was a great golfer, he finished second most often. His name's kind of been lost to history because of that. You know, mm-hmm. we all, everybody's heard of Byron Nelson, but McSpadden being second place, you know, History and people like the winner. So, Along with being golfers, McSpadden and Nelson were also inventors. That's right. They are credited with developing some of the earliest known golf shoes. Yes. Um, in the spirit of their innovation, I thought we'd play a little game. Okay. I will give you a golf-related item, and you tell me how it was invented. Okay. For example, plaid knickers. I bet you didn't know this. <laughs> but the Scottish... But because the Scottish invented the game and they like to wear kilts, um, when it came to playing the first Ryder Cup tournament in 1926 uh, between U.S. and British golfers, the Americans refused to wear the dresses. (laughs) So they stitched up the crotch and threw on some elastic around the knees. And that's how we ended up with plaid plaid knickers. Yeah, That's a joke, really. That's not true. That would make sense, though. And thank goodness, because in Kansas, you shouldn't play golf in a skirt. (laughs) No, it's a windy state. Yeah. Goodness. (laughs) Might show more than you want to. All right. So, Nikayla, so I'm going to give you the term, and you tell me, fictional or real, whatever, Okay. how this object was invented. All right? Okay. We're going to start out with the golf tee. 
Okay, well, I think the golf tee was invented because golfers had to have an excuse. You know, in, in Scotland, they had to have an excuse to go out on the links. And, you know, in England, they like to have, or in Britain, they like tea time. So I think golfers used to tell their wives, oh, I've got tea time with the guys. Oh, yeah. And so they had to create something for tea. So, you know, they just came up with this little stick to put their balls on. Oh, yeah. So they, yeah, they told their wives they were doing tea time, T-E-A. Which they were. Yeah. But really, they were doing tea time, T-E-E. Ah, so it was all a ruse to, to trick their wives into letting them play golf. Okay, that's pretty good. Well, actually, uh, the golf tee was invented in the 1920s by William Lowell, a dentist. Um, one day, while pulling a set of particularly nasty teeth, he came up with the idea for the golf tee. What? <laughs> a little known fact, huh? Yeah, so is, can, it, can it double like as a toothpick to like floss? <laughs> well, I, don't think, I don't think a dentist is going to recommend that. <laughs> okay, but. okay. All right, next we have Good to know. the stubby pencil. Okay, well, the stubby pencil really wasn't so much an invention because they would have had to have them, you know, back in, you know, 1600 and whatever when they started playing golf. So really, people were smaller back then, and golfers liked the tradition of the small pencil, <laughs> so they just kept it. So you're saying it hasn't always been a stubby pencil. At one time, when people were smaller, it was actually a full-length pencil. Yeah, or even a gigantic pencil. Okay. And if you buy the fact that people were smaller back then... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Finally, um, we have the sand greens. Okay, well. Which you might have to explain what a sand green is. Yeah, here in Kansas, I know in high school, I played sand greens golf. You played sand greens golf. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a necessity because our fairways pretty much look like the rough, and you can't really grow a good green here. <laughs> so we play sand greens, and after you're finished playing on the on the sand, you have to rake it to make it smooth again. And it actually adds a level of difficulty you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people probably think that was an invention because of the, you know, arid nature of Kansas, because it's, you know, the Great American Desert. But that's not true. If you will remember back to Blair's podcast on golfing several months ago, he mentioned that um, many early golf courses in Kansas were pastures, and they had to play sure. around the cow pies in the pasture. Uh -huh. So sand greens were actually invented as gigantic litter boxes. Uh, for cows? For cows, Yes. It was a way to control that. I did not know that. that. Yeah, because when you get close to the hole, you don't want to have to worry about, you know, putting through that. So it's better if it can be easily tidied up, just like a litter box. <laughs> that, is, that, is, <laughs> that is amazing. I know, yeah. I don't even know what to say. Well, no, it's tradition. We have to have our sand greens in Kansas. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm good with that, too. All right, Nikayla, well, thanks for telling us about this ticket to a 1968 golf tournament, and thanks for telling us about Jug McSpadden. No problem. Under my thumb, the girl who and now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today, as usual, is Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin. Hello. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Howdy. Today, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, which was, you know, sometime last week, uh, we, are connecting, <laughs> we are connecting William Allen White to the American mothership, the Mayflower. This 17th century sailing vessel became famous for carrying a load of angry British to Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, but before we go into that, we're going to do a little uh, listener feedback. Uh, Rebecca? Yeah, we heard from one of our listeners in Kansas City. His name's Chris. And Chris sent us a very to-the-point and brief email that said, if you want to know more about the Chiefs-Raiders rivalry, 
look at this link and it was where we should have looked in the first place <laughs> wikipedia yeah there is a wikipedia page called chiefs raiders rivalry that explains the whole thing yeah a couple months ago um we did a six degrees of william allen white connecting um white to the raiders and um Nikayla had the question of why is there such a rivalry between the kansas city chiefs and the oakland raiders and well unfortunately i didn't really know exactly why <laughs> but uh, one of our listeners mm-hmm. tipped us off so i went to the wikipedia page and i was reading through it and and um, it's not quite as simple. Uh, I mean, it's not really a simple answer to it. They Both teams often compete in the same league, and they both kind of um, sort of uh, crush each other uh, when it comes time for the league title. They've often kind of, uh, kind of ruined it for the other team. A long, bitter history. Yeah, and a lot of their games have resulted in fights on the field between players. <laughs> Which is why we all watch. <laughs> and so, uh, and there is one passage here from the Wikipedia page that I want to read, and it says... The Chiefs defeated the rivals by a score of 42-10 to 10 in the 1975 season, prompting the Chiefs' live horse mascot, Warpaint, to circle the field after each touchdown scored. After the game, the Raiders coach, John Madden, said, We couldn't beat the Chiefs, but we damn near killed their horse. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it goes, it goes all the way down to the mascot level of the, the test for yeah. one another. Um, so there's obviously a lot more to it, but um, that's kind of the story behind the Chiefs-Raiders rivalry. And we want to thank Chris for that feedback, especially since the Chiefs just beat the Raiders last weekend. <laughs> Woohoo! So we're all about talking about it yeah. while we're on top of the, uh, timely, of the series. Um, but yeah, and we love, we love getting listener feedback. Um, all right, back on, to, uh, back on task for this week, connecting William Allen White to the Mayflower. And I'll just give you a little general background on the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a, a one, I just want to say, just doing the research, it makes you think about the Mayflower in a little different capacity. I mean, previously, you just kind of think of it as this sort of vessel that, that you know, built by the pilgrims and sails the pilgrims to this new world to start America kind mm-hmm. of thing. Well, the story is not quite like that. Um, the Mayflower was actually a 180-ton merchant vessel that measured um, 110 feet in length and 25 feet in width. And it was primarily a cargo ship used to ship goods between England and the continent. So it had its own crew. It had its own job. It was typically sailing goods around Europe. Um, in 1620, the ship and its crew were hired by a group of English separatists. So they weren't. it wasn't the pilgrims that sailed it. The pilgrims just rode along. They paid a crew and a ship to take them. And the Mayflower just happened to probably be the lowest bid mm-hmm. ship at the time. <laughs> Um, so that took transport passengers from Plymouth, England, to Hudson Bay. They established the Plymouth Colony with the with the passengers aboard the Mayflower. Um, and tradition sort of dictates that that was the first settlement in North America, but it really wasn't. There was roughly eleven attempts to establish English-controlled colonies in North America, and some of them were even in existence at the time that the Pilgrims landed. Like Jamestown was fully functional, and that's where they were headed to. But they got a little off course. <laughs> a little. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So that's uh, that's a little bit of background on the Mayflower. And, Nikayla, I believe you have a solution, a way to connect William Ellenwhite to the Mayflower. Yes, I do. Well, as many of us have heard, John Alden was one of the passengers on the Mayflower. He was hired as a cooper or a barrel maker on the ship. And he is said to have been the first passenger to set foot on Plymouth Rock. Alden has many famous descendants, among them Frank Nelson Doubleday, who founded the publishing company. Before founding his own company, 
Doubleday worked for both Schreibner's Magazine and McClure's Magazine, mm-hmm. who commissioned mm-hmm. William Allen White to write political pieces and stories. So uh, what were some of the other famous descendants of this man? Yeah, um, there was a whole long list. Marilyn Monroe was on there. Wow. Raquel Welch. <laughs> so, yeah. And nice. Interestingly enough, um, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was also a vice president at Doubleday. So if you want to go through oh, yeah. our good friend Teddy Roosevelt, you can uh-huh. also do it for this one. But mm-hmm. Nicely done. Nicely done. So how many degrees? Uh, four degrees. That's pretty good. That's a little better than what I got. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's my solution. The Mayflower, the ship itself, was actually dismantled in 1623. And uh, some of the fragments were dispersed throughout London to do building pro- throughout England to do building projects to include a barn um, south of London. Um, today it's known as the Mayflower Barn. The English biblical scholar J. Reynolds Harris discovered the Mayflower barn and the connection between the Mayflower and the barn, and he was kind of famous for tracking down antiquities and finding out the um, uh, interesting connections to them. And in fact, he discovered some of the earliest versions of the Bible that are known today. Mr. Harris uh, worked as a professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the president of Johns Hopkins was Abilene native Milton Eisenhower. Uh-huh. Hmm. Milton, <laughs> just as a fun note, also served as president of Kansas State University in the 1940s. But more significantly, he was the younger brother of... Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander during WW2 and the 34th President of the U.S. As we know, Eisenhower was a golfing buddy with William Lindsay White, who was the son of William Allen White. Yeah, that took a while. Do you need need a drink of water? (laughs) I think we should change the name of this game to Seven Degrees of William (laughs) Allen White. So, yeah, do, does that disqualify him, Nikhil? Um, well, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, oh, maybe we'll let it pass. Okay. But this, next time, this time yeah. <laughs> okay. next time, you have to do it in two degrees. All right, punishment. not a problem. <laughs> not a problem. Okay, Rebecca, um, let's see how you do. Uh, well, I took the easy way out. I'm, I'm going with namesakes. I'm going the namesake route. So... Uh, let's see, which way do I go? I think I'll start with William Allen White, of course. He uh, was well, well-known, very famous editor, and he wrote lots of um, articles. He edited his own newspaper in Emporia, and he did a series of articles around the turn of the 20th century on famous men. And one of the famous men he met, interviewed, and wrote an article about was Grover Cleveland. Grover Cleveland, twice elected president of the United States, mm-hmm. not not uh, sequential terms, but they were separated by, I think, I'm trying to remember, uh, I can't remember my presidential history. <laughs> he was separated by Harrison, was it? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I didn't Somebody know out that. there. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, yeah. It they wasn't sequential. No, they weren't, too, they weren't sequential terms. Anyway, <laughs> so when White was interviewing Grover Cleveland, he found out that Cleveland was really upset with this newspaper, uh, the New York Sun. This was years earlier. The Sun had uh, claimed that Cleveland had gotten drunk aboard the presidential yacht, and this was when T.R. was president. Mm-hmm. Teddy mm-hmm. Roosevelt invited Cleveland on this yacht, and the name of the presidential yacht was the Mayflower, uh-huh. named after the original ship, the Mayflower. So who did the Mayflower the yacht belong to? That was the presidential yacht um, at at the time that Cleveland was aboard. And Cleveland swears he never got drunk, but this newspaper (laughs) reported that he did. I think Cleveland was also one that was accused, he was accused of fathering a child out of wedlock. And there were a lot of stories about Cleveland, but White liked him a lot. Uh, He said he was a great guy. And I think he kind of reminded him of 
Teddy Roosevelt, which would make mm-hmm. sense if they were, you know, buddies anyway. Um, all right. Do you think um, the Mayflower was that, that was that Roosevelt's personal yacht, or is that the presidential presidential yacht? Like, it Air was, Force One actually, is, the, is the plane, actually, is Mayflower the president's fi- boat? <laughs> I did do some research into the Mayflower because, I mean, the, this version of the Mayflower, I'd never heard of it before. But it was um, built in Scotland in 1898 and bought by the U.S. Navy, and they used it um, during the Spanish-American War. And they actually torpedoed um, a ship that, I'm trying to think it was like a British, oh yeah, they, they took as a prize a British blockade runner that was also named the Mayflower. I know, isn't that weird? (laughs) Um, And also then after the ship, it was decommissioned and became the presidential yacht right around the time that uh, Teddy Roosevelt became president. And it it was the presidential yacht well past TR into the 20s. Um, Rebecca, do you want to issue the uh, next challenge? Yes, for the next challenge, we're going to take you to Paradise City. (laughs) We want you to connect William Allen White to Axl Rose, the lead singer for the 80s mega band Guns N' Roses. This riot-inciting controversial artist is labeled brilliant by some and pathetic by others. Find out which camp William Allen White sided with. I think I can guess. Okay, this also means that Merle, because of his punishment from this week, has to connect William Allen White to Axl Rose in two degrees. Oh, I Go think I can it, do Mara. it. Go I think it, I can okay. do it. Good luck. We'll see. So if you think you can connect Axel Rose to William Allen White, just send your chain of connection to podcast at KSHS.org. That is podcast for the next. That concludes episode 69, Golfing Buddies. If you would like to see images of this ticket, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on the podcast icon. Before her plane vanished in 1937, Amelia Earhart traveled the world. She made many long-lasting friendships, which of course required Earhart to mail tons of Christmas cards every year. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me examine two Christmas cards sent by Amelia Earhart to friends in the British Isles. Find out what kind of card a pioneering aviatrix sends. Did she go with the standard Hallmark card, or did she get a little more creative? This podcast is a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories.